Let's talk about this for just a moment, and that's the skepticism of the human mind. A person who is lost, and even a person who is saved, part of the war, part of the battle that we fight, the flesh, is skepticism, especially when it comes to things that are supernatural. Uh, Brother Arthur just said something about Baptist and, and us being nervous. Well, be, be, uh, be very aware that many things have been robbed from us that our forefathers literally died for as Baptists so that we can enjoy the fullness of God and the fullness of the Word of God. You cannot have the Bible without supernatural. You cannot have the Holy Ghost of God without supernatural. Your God who is in heaven, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ are supernatural beings with supernatural power. The world has desensitized us to look at anything that is cited as supernatural for us to be skeptical. Well, it's impossible. You cannot prove it. One uh, that I heard not too long ago said in a YouTube video, he said, I can prove that God is not God and that the Bible is not real based on a few simple sciences that disprove all of the supernatural elements that Christians must have for their faith to be genuine, such as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what he does not know and what he is sadly blinded to is that there is so much scientific proof to the fact that Jesus lived on this earth, eyewitness accounts of his crucifixion, his burial, and yes, many eyewitness accounts of his resurrection. Proof, validation. For me, as a Christian, as a Bible believer, the Word of God is enough. I don't need archaeologists to prove anything for me because I know Jesus personally. I don't need a scientist from Harvard to run some sort of carbon date study for me to feel more secure in my belief of Scripture. I don't have to have it. But sometimes God just does something, and I say this with the utmost respect, to show off His power, His ability, His might, and the fact that you will never be able to escape who He is. One of those is found in the holy city of Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to look at the holy name in the holy city. The holy name in the holy city. 2 Kings 21, we'll read the first seven verses we're going to go here into a dark time, a dark place in the history of Israel. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hezebah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. After the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel... For he built up against the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. In Jerusalem 
will I put my name? If you highlight or underline or star in your Bible, I want you to do so in those words, in Jerusalem, will I put my name in verse number four. And he built altars for all the hosts of the heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. And he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name? And he doubled down and he said, Forever. I will put my name forever. And I would underline or highlight that phrase, what the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son. Let's pray and we'll dive into this study. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, God, we come back into your presence again on this beautiful Wednesday morning that you've given us. And Lord, you know exactly what we need. You know every heart, every mind, Lord, every set of motivation that's in this room. Lord, there is no one here that can escape the power and the might of your knowledge. You know what we are. You know what we think. You know what we ponder. And Lord, for a few minutes, I pray that us mere mortal people, Lord, that we would bow in front of you and the Holy Ghost of God, that we would allow you to encourage our hearts today. God, that our hearts would leave this room different than the way they came. Lord, that we would all grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of every infraction against you. Hide me behind the cross. Use me for thy glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's study for just a moment and talk about this wicked young man, Manasseh, who began to reign as co-regent alongside his father, Hezekiah, who was king. Uh, if you take notes, if you like to take notes as a preacher is preaching, would you raise your hand if you like to take notes? Okay, it gives me a good idea. I'm going to give you some dates. I'm going to give you some very specifics. I feel like we've got a little more time this morning. I'm going to give you some of the stuff from my notes. Because I know some of the people in here, you are students of the Word of God. And you're going to go back and you're going to dig through this for yourself. I encourage such. But I want you to look at Manasseh. And I want you to look at his co-leading or his co-regency alongside his father Hezekiah. And then we can look in Jewish history and see that that's around 695 BC. Jewish history is some of the best kept history in the world. Every civilization has some type of history. A lot of it's been lost for some, but the Jews have wonderful history books. 695 is when you can start to see the reign of this wicked young man. And history teaches us that there was a 10-year co-pastoring, co-leadering, co-kingship, if you will, of the people there in Jerusalem. Hezekiah the older and then his son Manasseh. Now Hezekiah, to the best of our knowledge from what we see in Scripture, did all that he could do. Was Hezekiah a perfect king? No. Did Hezekiah make mistakes? Yes. And Hezekiah did his best, it would seem, to groom his son, to train his son, but Hezekiah leading by example was not enough. 
His evil, wicked son, Manasseh, had something inside of him that really tore against all authority. Stay with me here, you'll see the typology. Manasseh had something in him that looked at the old foundations of what Hezekiah had done. And instead of loving the God of his father, somehow this boy gets off track so bad that he starts replacing those things which belong to God and filling that temple, that sacred place, the altars of God with statues and with relics to false gods. Let's just go ahead and get this in our mind that Manasseh comes off the rails quickly in his kingship and he abandons the God of his father. Verse 2 talks about the abominations of the heathen. The abominations of the heathen. These are detestable practices. And where he would have learned this and where would he have known all of this? How did Manasseh become corrupted? Much of what Manasseh did came directly from the Canaanites. He was enamored with them and how they did things and how they worshipped and how they did life. And even in Deuteronomy 18, you can go back and see just how wicked and vile the Canaanites are. And Israel's reproduction of these abominable practices of the heathen that preceded her in the land, it was forbidden. They had been told, they had been warned. Yet for Manasseh, something inside this boy was broken and he went up against all the truth, all the good, and all the righteousness. Verse 3 talks about high places and altars and images. And what Manasseh did in his reversal was actually reversing the reforms of Hezekiah, his father. Hezekiah had done many great things. Hezekiah had rebuilt many of the things that had fallen apart. He was trying his best to reform the people. Hezekiah had a desire to see things change and did so by the help of the Lord. And Manasseh reversed all of it. And the most ardent, evident thing that you can see here is his reestablishment of the worship of Baal. And he did so making it an official state-sanctioned religion. Can you imagine being the apple of God's eye? The children of Israel who have been chosen... And yet, it did not matter that they were the sons and the daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now this one wicked ruler is allowed to take the whole nation uh, 14 steps backwards and straight into the worship of Baal as a nation. And what he is doing is repeating the steps, repeating the history of Ahab and other wicked rulers. You can see all of that in 1 Kings 16. Look at the similarities in Ahab and Manasseh. He promoted worship of the Son instead of promoting worship of the one who created the Son. He promoted worship of the moon and the stars, and it was a direct disobedience to the commandments of God given by Moses. Verse 4, he talked about the altars of the Lord. The altars that had been dedicated to the host of heaven. And now he's trying to appease all parties. He's wanting and desiring to be progressive. Well, we can have altars to the Lord God who is our God, Yahweh. But we'll also have altars to Baal. We'll also worship stars and moons and we'll have rituals and practices that the Canaanites established. He wants a little bit of all of it 
to be inclusive in his ideology. But what he's doing is taking the nose of the plane and running it into the ground as quickly as possible. Verse 6 is probably the most uh, in-your-face evidence of how wicked this young man was. Verse 6 says, And he made his son pass through the fire. Well, part of the ritual worship of Molech, the god of the Moabites, were that children were to be sacrificed by fire. That's what's happening here. This young man was so thirsty for power, he was so thirsty for control, and he so desired to appease so many different opinions in his progressiveness away from God that even his own son fell victim to his wickedness. And if you know anything about the wicked practices of the Moabites and how they would worship the god Moloch, it's hard to even say out loud. The way that the brazen altar would be heated to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousand plus degrees. And then the precious child would be laid to scald to death upon that altar. Full of evil, full of wickedness. And it's the same spirit that if allowed to be kept unchecked by God, the Holy Ghost, by God Himself, that is the evidence of humanity in form and in fashion right in front of you that you can understand just how wicked and vile it is. That same spirit of humanism... That same spirit of progressiveness away from God. I'm not talking about progress building roads and bridges. I'm not talking about progress with social security. I'm not talking about progress as it pertains to politics. I'm talking about men who think in their own power, in their own might, and in their own wisdom that they will progress the people away from what's normal, away from what's natural. That line set by God himself, understand that. That the further we get away from that line of normalcy, the further we get away from the truth of who God is and the rule of God, then the more progressed we will have become. That is the same spirit that lives in America to this day. For men and women to sit in the halls of our Congress, the halls of Senate, and to have open discussion about third trimester abortions, where the child is breathing and fully developed and crying and trying to figure out whether it should be illegal or not, whether we can kill that baby or not. That's not abortion, it's infanticide. It's no different than a man who, in the name of progress, wants to take his own son and lay him on the scalding altar of Moloch. There is no difference. That same spirit lives today. It still lives today in this land. It lives inside every Planned Parenthood in America. It lives inside the political system of the world. The World Economic Forum, the United Nations, all of these pieces that are put in place are obsessed with power, obsessed with control, and obsessed with an evil progressiveness away from God. That same spirit still lives in this day and in this hour. And Manasseh provoked God. He goes into his holy place, to his holy altars, and did things that truly he did not know God personally or he would have feared him differently. It said that he set things on the altar of God. These deities that belong to the worship of Baal. This is a young king, a vile king, and it's a reign of wickedness, and it reversed everything that his father had done. 
He'd forgotten the God of his father completely and totally. He had forgotten all that he had said, all that he had done. And now Manasseh is replacing it with false gods. Now I think we can all say, we can all say that this is a terrible place. This is a horrific place for Jerusalem to be, for Israel to be, the tribes of Judah to be. This is a horrific scene that's unfolding before our eyes. It almost makes me sad to think about a young ruler being so enamored that he takes all of those beautiful things that his father had done and ruined them. Just a matter of a short reign. And now I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the faithful. Let's pretend now that we are in Israel, that we all live in Jerusalem, and that we all live, and it's around 659, 660 B.C., But we are the remnant. We are the faithful. We refuse to go and worship Baal. We refuse to worship the sun god. We refuse to go along with Manasseh and his ideals. And we hold fast to the truth that there is but one God. And for us living in 659 BC in Jerusalem, we would say words like Yahweh. We would pray every day for the Messiah to come. And in Hebrew and in the old language, we would pray something along the lines of Baha Mashiach, come Messiah. Come rescue us. Save us from this evil. Save us from the trial and the tribulation of life. Our leader has turned wicked. And your altars have been turned into a joke. False gods now line the temple. Everything had changed, and it would be unspeakable. And now imagine that we're in the United States of America, and it's 2023. Imagine we are in a place and a time where now all of a sudden it's become illegal for your pastor to preach Romans chapter 1. Imagine it's no longer allowed by law for a pastor to stand in a pulpit and say that marriage is between a man and a woman. Imagine a place and a time where what's taught in Sunday school to our children is regulated by a federal agency. And that for us to be able to teach a curriculum, it must be submitted via email on a government website that barely works. Imagine you're in a place where the King James Bible is seen as an archaic text that's full of violence. It should no longer be allowed to be sold or carried by American citizens because we're all inclusive. We're too woke to have a book like that in our homes and in our shelves. Imagine a place where it is illegal for you to give money to a church or to a ministry without that ministry or that church paying a tax that it's never had to pay. Church, with all the love of my heart, that is the direction of our country. That's where we are headed. Before it's all said and done, it could be that there is real, tangible, physical persecution upon the church of Jesus Christ in this country. I believe with all my heart there are a lot of patriots that still love their land, that still love this country, that would do everything in their power, including giving their life to protect that freedom. 
I believe that. My father's one of them. He would do anything. My grandfather's one of them. I'd love to think that I'm one of them. That I would do anything to protect what God had given us. To whom much is given, much is required. But understand that's the direction of the country. But as we live our lives, we are not to focus, nor do we draw our hope, our energy, and our encouragement from such things. We'll never be able to go to the world system and truly be encouraged. You're not going to be able to look at the direction of the country politically and really say, well, we're heading in the right direction. Things are back on track. The only solution is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only solution. You say, well, pastor, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I don't think it'll ever get that bad. I don't think it'll ever get that bad. Well, if you go to history and you go to 1935 or 1936 and you ask a group of Austrians that lived in Austria in the 30s, they never thought it was possible either. Go to slide number one. This is Sunday, April 24th, 1938. Okay? 1938. And on the front page it reads, Nazis to purge Vienna Library. Non-Aryan works to be burned. This is the front page from the archive. I found it last night. 1.2 million volumes of Austrian National Collection will be destroyed. And some of those books dated all the way back to the 16th century. One political shift, one movement, one ideal that took rapidly in the hearts and the minds of unsaved, unregenerate young people. And within a few years... They're standing in their national library. This would be no different than going to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. and burning 1.2 million copies, volumes of history, volumes of books. One of the books targeted was the Holy Bible. One of the books targeted were the works of theologians like John Calvin. And here you have it, 1.2 million books burned and they never thought it was possible for them it's just an idea it's just nationalism and here we are it was not nationalism it was straight out of hell go to the next picture here is a picture from that night as it took place in vienna 1.2 million burned radical wicked men who rose to power and it ignited the fires in the wickedness in people, and it forever left a mark. We fought a war over this. World War II, the lives that were lost. This is a scar that will forever live in our world. Even today, we still feel the effects of what took place. Manasseh did it. Hitler did it. And others are doing it even today to the best of their ability. You see, the moral decline becomes more and more obvious every day. A general respect for God has been completely dissolved. I remember Poppy and even my granddaddy talking about times in this city where there were men who would not go to church on Sunday. And yes, they would sit on a rock wall or a ledge outside of a gas station or an old general store. And yes, they would have beer left over from the night before. And they'd pop the top on their beer and sit on the wall 
And while church is going on, these men in Asheville are drinking their beer. But when the preacher would walk by going to church, the drunks on the wall knew that that was a preacher because he had a Bible in his hand, he had a suit on, they knew him because he had made an impact in the community. They respected who he was because they respected the fact that he loved God. And even the drunks in this city, I have two eyewitness accounts that said that more than five men who were mostly intoxicated, as the preacher walked by, would stand up off the wall, put their beer behind their back, and say, good morning, preacher, God bless you. Good morning, preacher. God bless you. What's changed? How how have we got to this place? Because we are on that gradual train, that slow slide into the abandonment of all goodness and morality and wholeness that can only be found in the person of our God. The church has been subverted. The truth has been shoved to the corner. We told God to get out of the schools. We took the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. Understand this is the process that's part of the last days where Jesus is going to come back. That's the truth. That's where all of this is resolved is in the coming of the Lord. It's not in an election. It's not in tax reform. It's not in who runs your county politics. We will do everything we can in our power to win that fight. But that will not solve the problem. It's a heart problem. It's the absence of God that's the problem. And only the return of Jesus and the final judgment of evil will be the solution. And here's where my heart is, especially, especially if you're over the age of 60 years old in this room. This is my heart for you as your pastor. If you don't go to this church, you're not a member here, and you're in that age bracket, it's still my heart for you, and it's my heart for those at your church that are in this age bracket. If you're not careful, if you don't live intentionally with spiritual practices for your inner man, then this world and everything that it's becoming, this world and everything that it already is, will rob you of your joy, it'll rob you of your peace, It will rob you of your stability. You'll feel dejected. You'll feel sad. You'll feel defeated. All because of what's taking place in your country. All because of the moral decline of the nation. All because of what you see even in your own families and your own grandchildren. How you don't even recognize the language coming out of their mouth. And it'll shatter your heart. And the greatest fear that you have now, you've never had it before, but now that you see the darkness that was unleashed in a way that we cannot even explain, an atomic explosion of sin that happened during COVID, you look at your family and you weep for what they're going to have to experience over the next 30 years. What will America be in 2050? Maybe that we can't even talk about it in mixed company. But how could it be? How can it be? God is in charge. Can we all agree? I'm, I'm asking. We're teaching and preaching this morning. Do we believe that God is in charge? Do we believe that God is in all control and in all power? Do we believe that God and His Word is true? Every word of it true. I do too. Then how can it be that as Manasseh, who has been assigned the great role of being a king in the holy city, how can it be that God is in control that God is being honored, that God is is satisfied at all, even with the remnant that's there, how can it be that God has His name in this city? 
How could it be that God is anywhere close to this situation? And when I walk into a city like New York City, or if I walk into even a city like Tampa, Florida, or Dallas, Texas, in our country today, and I know that there are Baptist churches that teach and preach the Word of God that are within 10, 15 miles of where I'm standing, and I see all the darkness. I see all the wickedness. I watch C-SPAN and I hear what's being said on the floor of our Congress, on the floor of our Senate. And I go, where in the world are the people who love God? Where is God's hand and His sovereignty in all of this mess? How could it be possible that we got to this place? God, why do I have to pastor in this generation? Why couldn't I have had the generation post-World War II where we're on fire for God and people love God and wanted to serve God and do it with all their strength and with all their might? God, why are we in this shape? Why are we in this place? Well, there's something that we have in common with even Manasseh's generation. Something that goes back all the way to 659 B.C. that to this day is there for you and it's there for me to know that God's holy name has been written in his holy city and no matter how dark it gets outside, no matter how wicked it gets outside, that God is looking at you and he knows where you are and he knows your name and he knows the tears on your pillow and the pain in your heart. And he's right there. And one day soon and very soon, his son is coming. Let the church say, Amen. Amen. This is a message of hope. This is a message of stability. Let's take a trip to Jerusalem, shall we? We're here. Welcome. Use your imagination. You're standing on holy ground. We're in Jerusalem. If you've ever actually been to Jerusalem before, would you raise your hand? If you've ever been, a lot of us. Well, you're back. If you've never been, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Here we are. This is the same city. The same topographical skyline. The mountain ranges, the valleys, the rivers. All of that's the same. A lot of what you see is different. Buildings and structures. Let's talk about Jerusalem. And I'm going to leave this slide up for a second and let's think upon what God has said about Jerusalem. Turn to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. The first verse says, His foundation is the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, Selah. His foundation, holy mountains. What the writer here is talking about is that God has founded this city. The Jerusalem foundation stone goes all the way back to God Himself according to Scripture. He said, how glorious are the things spoken of thee. The gates of Zion. Now Zion is a poetic description of Jerusalem. There are many meanings inside that word Zion. But it is a very poetic description. It's how the Old Testament writers use the word. And it was a special spiritual significance to say the word Zion. Everybody say Zion with me. Zion. That makes the devil nervous. There was great religious significance. 
that God himself, now listen, this is not geopolitical. You just said you believe the word of God is inerrant, infallible, holy, inspired, right? We still believe it? Good. So the writer here is saying that the foundation of Jerusalem, the holy city, founded by God himself, and that God has put a special privilege on this city. You're looking at it on your screen. We're standing here together in Jerusalem. God has put a special blessing, a special designation to be something that's close to his heart. If you were to ask God what his favorite city is, he would have an answer. It would be Jerusalem. God holds Jerusalem in high regard. More than all the dwellings of Jacob. That means all the cities under the rule of Israel. Other cities in Israel were not chosen by God to be this place of his special dwelling. The reason he chose Jerusalem is because this would be the place that he would dwell. This is the place that he would be close to his people. This is the place where he would forgive their sins. This is the place where the Shekinah of glory would hover and the presence of God would be. This was the headquarters of the high priest. This was the headquarters of all redemptive history. Jerusalem is special to God and it goes directly to the foundation of his heart and who he is and who he is to them. You see, Israel, remember the chosen, the apple of his eye. If they're the apple of his eye, then he would give them a city that is also due his children. This is a special place, and it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the Muslims. It doesn't belong to the Catholic Church or the Mormons who are buying up land faster than you can imagine in Jerusalem. It doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. It's God's holy city. So understand as we build on this that this is a very, very special city. A a city founded by God Himself. And to this day, even this morning, there is a fight. There is a struggle for the name of God to be worshipped freely in Jerusalem. There's no temple now. The big gold dome that you see there is one of the most holy sites in Islam. That gold dome has nothing to do with Christianity. It has nothing to do with Judaism. That gold dome built around the 600s by the Ottoman Turks is nothing more than an eyesore to a skyline that belongs to God and His chosen people. And one day, bless God, it won't be there anymore because He's going to clean the temple mount off with one holy wind. And there He will build His eternal city. It belongs to God. You say, that's mean, that's that's hateful. No, it's the truth. That city doesn't belong to men. It belongs to God Himself. Go back now to the days of Hezekiah, his son Manasseh. Hezekiah had restored the temple. He'd pushed out idolatry. Hezekiah had reestablished the direction of the nation. His son Manasseh comes to power, tells down the altar, replaces them. The tragedy of it all, the verses that we read there in 2 Kings. All right, so now we're in Jerusalem. It's 659. Manasseh is in power. Okay? Are we there together? Say amen. All right, 659. We're in 2 Kings. Let's pay attention again to those verses. I told you to highlight a little portion of that verse. It says, And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In Jerusalem, I will put my name. Verse number 7, And he set graven image on the grove that he made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, 
in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So where did God put his name? He put it in Jerusalem. Right. Okay, but where? How? If he said, I will put my name there forever. I believe the word of God to be true, to be solid. I have heard skeptics use these verses as ammunition, if you will, in their gun uh, to try to poke holes in our faith. Well, I love this. I don't know if I'll ever make it through any of this, but I'm going to try my best. So, if his name is in that city, and if his name is written forever, so then is it something to be discovered? Is it an ancient scroll? Is it an archaeological site, that a dig where pottery has been found and scrolls and coins? Is this, as we would maybe assume, that the reference is to the temple? Well, the problem is that big gold dome's there. There is no temple. All that's there are the remnants of the foundation stones. The Jews can't even go to the top where that gold dome I just showed you was. They can't even go there. If they do, it has to be approved by the Israeli government and a police force armed to the teeth has to take those Jews past that place to go to the Eastern Gate to pray, even to this day. They have no access to this place. Why would God write His name in a place that His people would not have access to? Why would God write His name and say forever and know that the temples would be destroyed? How can this be so? Deuteronomy 12, 21. Look at this verse. Stay with me. I know we had a lot of ice cream last night and maybe we want to take a nap, but stay with me and God will bless you with this. Deuteronomy 12, 21. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name there be too far from thee, then thou shalt kill of thy herd and of thy flock, which the Lord hath given thee, as I have commanded thee, and thou shalt eat in thy gates whatsoever thou soul lusteth after. Okay, the key into this verse is the very beginning. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name there to be too far. Here it is again, more proof. More proof that God has put his name. This is in Deuteronomy a long time before we're talking about what we've talked about in 2 Kings. And yet here it is again, God has put his name in this city. All right, let's continue our growth and our knowledge here. Let's go to slide number four, media team. Now, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters. And each letter has a specific meaning and even has a numeric value. This in front of you is the 21st letter, and it's the letter Sheen. Everybody say Sheen. This is the 21st letter, the numeric value being 300. It was used in Aramaic and Seratic text, both in Old and New Testaments. And in Gematria, that 300 has so much meaning. There, there are so many things we could talk about. The drawing, the specifics of this letter. It's, it's rich. But I want to talk about this letter Sheen. And if you'll notice, it kind of looks like an English or Paleo W, if you will. That's a good way to remember. But... This very important letter 
For Jews, it was a sacred letter. This is the letter that is used to denote the unspeakable name of Hashim, or the name of God. It's also the letter that represents the word Shaddai, or El Shaddai, which is the holy names of God himself. Don't you get ahead of me, Baptists. The holy name of God himself. The holy name of Yahweh. The literal translation of God in your Old Testament is Yahweh. Everyone say with me, Yahweh. The name of God. And this letter, this sheen, was so important. It was the foundation letter of that word. And it's what's used to represent God without writing out the complete name of God. Even to this day, I get emails almost every day from Jewish friends all over the world. And when they go to tell you at the end of the email, God bless you, it will never say G-O-D, bless you. It will be capital G hyphen little d because the Jew has so much respect and reverence for the name of God, they will not spell it out. So this is one of the ways they can annotate. This is one of the ways that they can display the name of God respectfully by using sheen. Everybody say it again with me. Sheen. Here you are. The 21st letter is sheen. Let's go to slide number five and look at this. This is a mezuzah. This is a mezuzah. And in Israel and in Jewish homes throughout the world, it's common for Jewish houses to have a mezuzah or a prayer box. And what do you see there at the very top of the mezuzah? Sheen, the name for God, El Shaddai, Yahweh. And inside this prayer box, there is a little scroll, a portion of Scripture. And it's rolled up really, really, really tight. And it's inside this mezuzah. It's inside of this prayer box. And you see the two screw holes, one at the top, one at the bottom. And then it would be screwed to the doorpost right inside the doorframe of every home and every business. Can anyone tell me from memory what that uh, verse is that's inside the mezuzah? It's Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the contents of every mezuzah. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That is the contents of every prayer box, of every mezuzah that you find. So now you see this is a part, the sheen is a part of daily life in the life of a Jew. When you come into the business, you walk by the door and you touch the mezuzah. I have seen them walk in, touch the mezuzah, Deuteronomy 6.4, and then touch their heart to remind themselves, Hero Israel, there is one God, our Lord. This is part of their everyday life. Every time they exit, every time they come in, they would touch the mezuzah. The sheen is a very important part of their life and of their faith. Now, let's continue in this. With the advent of aerial photography, satellite imagery, uh, topographical maps, there are remarkable views that unfold when one looks at Jerusalem, the holy city, from a high vantage place. This would have been a, a vantage point, a place that only for a few hundred years were even thought possible. And only since the invention of aviation 
Would it be possible to see these formations, to see the city of Jerusalem from 10,000 feet or from 8,000 feet? But before we go above the land, let us first look from the ground. Let's look at the ground. Stay with me. We're going to land soon. There are three significant valleys that make up the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Three significant valleys. Two that flank the outskirts. And you'll see what they flank. They flank, they flank the Mount of Olives and they flank on the right side the Temple Mount. Okay? We'll talk about that in a minute. But that first valley is the Kidron Valley. You can go to Israel today. We can get on a flight. Uh, there's a 540 out of Asheville. Uh, we can be in JFK by 9 o'clock tonight. And we can be in Tel Aviv tomorrow by 515. And I could take you by supper time tomorrow and we could walk the Kidron Valley. Who wants to go? Right, that sounds fun. Book the tickets and somebody pay for it. All right. The Kidron Valley. It's there to this day. I have walked the Kidron Valley. I have stones from the Kidron Valley. In the day... Of Manasseh. In the day of Hezekiah, this valley was there. One thing that our pastor emeritus, my granddaddy, has taught me about studying this land is that you use your Bible and then use the land to be your marker. You do not move oceans, you do not move mountains, and you do not move valleys. You may have Different looks, you may have a mountain that is a little shorter in feet, but that mountain, for the most part, will still be there. Those are the points of reference. So here we have the Kidron Valley, an old, old valley. And then secondly, after the Kidron Valley, I want you to look at Hinnom Valley or the Valley of Gehenna. The Valley of Gehenna. And then the second the second being Valley of Gehenna, the third being the Tyropian Valley. All of these are really close by. This is between the Mount of Olives on the backside and the backside of the Temple Mount. We're talking about a distance of maybe four or five miles at most to get to all three of these valleys. Are you with me? All right. So here you have those valleys. We're, we're on the ground level of Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, some of this, you're recognizing it and you already see it. But now let's go to 10,000 feet. All right, so let's go up. We're at 10,000 feet. This is a satellite image that was taken just a few weeks ago in Jerusalem. Okay, could you imagine Poppy having access to Google Earth and to Google Images and to the libraries online? He'd have lost his mind. But here we are around 10,000 feet above the city. Okay. Those three valleys are there in front of you. You just can't see them. Uh, they're not depicted. We're not showing you a chart. You would need to turn this image just a little bit. But understand with me why I'm showing you this is just how small of an area we're talking about. We're not talking about the entire nation of Israel. We're talking about a few city blocks, a few miles at most. Now, these three valleys run between three different mountaintops. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But let's go to this next slide. And I want to answer a question for you that I asked earlier. How would God write His name and how would He keep it forever? If it's in the temple, the temple's been destroyed twice. If it's in the Ark of the Covenant, we don't know where it's at. If it's in a scroll that's been buried in the Dead Sea, nobody's found it. 
But upon looking and understanding topography and the maps as they lay now, would you begin to look with me now and see the Hinnom Valley, the Tyropian Valley, and the Kidron Valley, and those are the shapes that these valleys run naturally. No man has taken a bulldozer. Nobody's used TNT. Nobody's used explosives. There haven't been day laborers with shovels. This is just the natural contour of the land. And if you look closely, what you'll begin to see is the Hebrew letter that we just talked about, Sheen. It is the name of God in Hebrew written in the land and written specifically in Jerusalem, just a few feet away from the city of David, just a few feet away from the Temple Mount, just a few feet away from the Pool of Siloam, just a few feet away from where Jesus healed the blind man, just a few feet away from where Jesus looked at the adulterous woman and said, go and sin no more. All there, all that walking around, only Jesus would have known, only the Son of God would have known that as they walked up the Kidron Valley to go to the Mount of Olives for the Passover the night before he died that Jesus was walking in the name of his father El Shaddai the good God of heaven the good God of earth and he was walking up the Kidron Valley to get to the Mount of Olives and he's walking in the part of his father's name and God promised that his name would be written in the land and it's been there for all time since God made heaven and earth his name has been written it's been right there in front of you. All this time, God's name, all that wickedness, all the Muslim control, all the things that have taken place, it doesn't matter. God wrote his name with valleys and with mountains. Somebody say amen. He said, my name will be in that city. And there it is. On the left there, that's from an old Bible map that's in the back of an old Schofield Bible. Isn't that great? Well, I just love that. That's juicy. It's so good. It gets better. We'll end here. We could spend all day here, but let's just finish here. So the city of Jerusalem has the name of God, El Shaddai, Yahweh, written in the valleys, the three principal valleys. Now, those principal valleys, they run in between one mountain called Mount Zion, right? We've heard, we talked about Zion. We talked about being a, a poetic name for Jerusalem. But Zion is also literally a mountain, Mount Zion. But Mount Zion is not just one mountaintop or one hill. Mount Zion has three different heads, three different mountaintops that make up the one mountain. It's not a range, it's a mountain called Mount Zion. All right, so three different tops but one mountain. Mm, what does that sound like? Maybe a depiction of the Trinity. Three different personalities, three different types, but it's the same mountain. It is Mount Zion. I would love for you to tell me how people in the 600s came up with this lie that is sticking to this day and they changed the map and topography and mountains and rivers and streams to make this lie work. I'm sorry, but it would take more faith not to believe that the Word of God is in, in there and infallible holy and inspired. It's in your face. It's written in the globe. Praise the Lord. But these three mountaintops have very specific meanings. So in my mind, Yahweh, God the Father, the foundation of everything that I am, 
everything that I want and everything one day that, praise God, that I will see when my faith becomes sight. For me, church, I'm just going to tell you, this is some faith becoming sight. It really is. This is some things that we can read from the Old Testament thousands of years old and look at it on a screen and topography and understand that it is real. It's so true. But in Hebrew, let's talk about these three mountaintops and then we'll go eat some lunch. Those three tops are Mount Ophel, Mount Zion, and Mount Moriah. Mount Ophel, Mount Zion, and Mount Moriah. Guys, go back to slide 13 for just a second. This is Ophel. Now, this is back in Solomonic Jerusalem. And here's what I want you to understand about the word Ophel. God the Father's name, Yahweh El Shaddai is on the base. And then at the very top of one of the three prongs is Mount Ophel. Ophel means, in Hebrew, my fortress, my tower, and my stronghold. And in the name of God the Father, you will find your fortress, your tower, your stronghold, and that's something for you to hold on to each and every day of your life. That no matter what happens, no matter what's going on in the world, that He is a mighty fortress that cannot be moved. Say amen. 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 If you want to look at Othel, what that word means, and get a better reading and understanding, you can start with Strong's. And that's number H6076. That's Strong's H6076 for the students that want to go dig. Mount Ophel, my fortress, my tower, my stronghold, the very top. And as I look down Mount Ophel from my tower, my fortress, I can see there the Kidron Valley that spells the name of El Shaddai. Verse, let's go to slide number 14. Let's talk about this next mountaintop. This is Mount Zion. Zion means the mark. It means the sign. Zion means the seal, the pillar. And for the students that want to go look, it's Strong's number H, 6725. 6725 in your Strong's Concordance. And we are reminded of a Pauline epistle to the Ephesians, the 13th verse of the first chapter. When Paul says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit of God is that seal. It is that hold that will keep you until that day. And on top of Mount Zion where God accomplished so much with his son Jesus Christ and paid for your redemption full and free. You not only have the fortress of who he is, but then you have the hope and the promise that you are sealed forever, the mark of a believer. And when you're standing on Mount Zion, you can rest assured that God knows who you are, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he sent his son and that you are marked not just for this earth but for all of eternity because what God has accomplished on Mount Zion then the last slide number 15 Mount Moriah Mount Moriah and that's there now on the top 
of Mount Moriah. Moriah means to see God or to be seen of God. To see God or to be seen of God. This is Strong's number 4179. 4179, Mount Moriah. You go all the way back to Genesis 22. And Moriah is where Abraham took his only begotten son, Isaac. And as a sacrifice before the Lord, he would offer his only son. And then God in grace and in mercy intervened. God sent and put a ram in the thicket. And God spared Isaac. And now inside of this Muslim relic, this Muslim controlled building, the same stone, the same elevated place on Moriah where Abraham offered his son Isaac, that stone is now inside of that Muslim controlled building. Understand that. You can't go inside that building. 2019, I took a $100 bill. I'd made this plan for months. I was going to stick this $100 bill in the pocket of a Jordanian soldier. Uh, The Jordanians, the Heshemites, still to this day, control the security of the Temple Mount. They're not Israelis. They're not Palestinians. They're Jordanians. They're funded by the Heshemite Kingdom of Jordan. They'll have on Rolex watches and they'll carry Glock handguns. They'll be well-fed, well-shaved. They'll speak five or six languages. And I went up to that gentleman and I said, if I give you this $100, would you just take my cell phone inside that building and get a picture of that rock? I, I, I know I can't go in. I'm not a Muslim. But would you please just take my cell phone and get a picture? I want a picture of that rock on my phone. I want to see that stone. It's important to me. And he got in my face and he yelled and he screamed and he repeated. I can't repeat 90% of what he said. So I didn't get my picture that day. That was in 2019. Then in March of 2022, via a special relationship that goes all the way back to my great grandfather, Dr. Ralph Sexton Sr., the founder of our church. And the relationship that he built with this family and the relationship that my granddaddy carried on with this family. And now I have the privilege as a fourth generation to carry on this privileged relationship. I was invited into an apartment that's just about 30 feet from the entrance of the Golden Dome. You wouldn't even believe that there are apartments there. But just up above there, you'll see the domes. Or you'll see the arches, I'm sorry. Right there are doors that go into apartments. We were invited to come into a Muslim family's home for tea and for coffee, for other things that they prepared. I'm not really sure what it was. And he looked at us and he talked to it. He invited my wife and he invited Andrew and Emily Weinbarker and we all went in there to have coffee and to talk. He asked me, would you be interested in going inside of the Golden Dome? And go to that next, go to that video that I put with this. That's from my camera in March of 2022. I'm inside the dome. This is inside the Dome of the Rock. Miranda had to put on a head covering. Miranda had to put on a very specific skirt. Very, very strict. We had to be very careful. We could not touch each other. But they allowed us inside. There's Andrew, Pastor Ralph. And there's Miranda and Emily there in the back. They had to dress as a Muslim woman would. And go to that next picture. 
And there it is. There is the stone that scholars believe Isaac laid there as Abraham was getting ready to take his life on top of Mount Moriah. And what Abraham saw that day was God provide in a way that only he could with a ram in the thicket. But a few thousand years later, right there in the holy city that is forever tattooed by the name of God written in the topography of the land, Jesus Christ hung on my cross and he paid for my sin and there was no ram in the thicket on that day. And Jesus paid it all. And as he hung from the cross, he could look back towards Jerusalem from Golgotha and see the three valleys, the Kidron, the Gehenna, the one in the middle that ran to the very bottom. And remember that his father, his daddy, El Shaddai, was still in charge. Do you believe that the Bible is an errant, infallible, holy, inspired word of God? If you don't, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to take the Word of God and help you understand. I love this little study that we were able to do. So in review, Othel, my fortress, represents God the Father. Zion, the mark of God that represents God the Holy Spirit confirmed in Ephesians. Moriah, to see God. God the Son who we saw walk this land. And all of the above valleys that spelled out, God is, God was, and God will forever be. Just go back through history in your mind and think of all the times that Jerusalem was conquered and some pagan God denier stood there in that city and thought that they had conquered the Lord God of heaven. Think of Manasseh. He thinks he's being progressive. He's going to change things. Well, the valley still said that God is, God was, and God will forever be. You think of when Nebuchadnezzar came and he sieged the city. Think of Titus and the Roman legion. Think of Salahuddin in the 1100s when they threw out all the Christians and all the Jews and set it up as a Muslim-controlled city. They may have built their relics. They may have built their mosques, but they could not erase the valleys. They said God is, God was, and God will forever be. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of your word and the study of Scripture. God, thank you for preserving the land, the fifth gospel, for us to see, for us to know, and for us to understand that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Lord, I pray that today you would encourage every Christian that's here. God, for every ounce of doubt that comes, may this offer a pound of proof that God is who he said he was. That his son was a perfect, sinless sacrifice that paid the sin debt they could not pay. That they've been marked by the Holy Spirit of promise. That until Jesus comes, or till death comes for us all, you will be faithful and you will be there. Your name is written in our hearts and it's attached all the way to the holy city where your holy name is written. It's in Jesus' name we ask you to bless the lunch and our time together. Amen and amen.